Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Nutrients Podcast. I'm Oliver Hartwig and I'm once again joined by our historian in residence, Matthew Birchall. Hi, Matthew. Hi, Oliver. We want to continue our conversation from last week. That was when we talked two days before the election. Now the election is behind us. What did you make of the result? Well, initially, I thought maybe my predictions were going to be totally out when I saw the, the first polls come through. It looked like National were going to achieve a much stronger result than, than we had predicted. And it looked, at least initially, like it might be a, an act and National government. I, I had a different fear, actually, after okay. our podcast on Friday afternoon when I saw the Roy Morgan poll. Yeah. 30.5% for national. And bear in mind, Roy Morgan was the most accurate pollster in the 2020 election. This time, they were totally off. Yeah, quite. I, I'd sort of tuned out from, from the polls in that, that last couple of weeks. I well, mean, lucky you. <laughs> there's a lot of talk of momentum and, and Hipkins finding his, his energy, but yep. I think the point of polls is to capture a trend over time. And I think especially the commentariat in New Zealand were making too much of one or two polls. So I wasn't too much phased by that. It, mm. it was more the initial results coming out. I thought all national are doing much better than I thought. Kind of strange, actually, what happened on the night because around 8 p.m. or so, it mm-hmm. looked like 42% national. In the end, they had 38.95, I think, on the preliminary result. So they lost 3% over the night. Quite astonishing, actually, isn't it? Yeah, I don't know what you can put that down to, but it was a sort of a slow ebbing away of support throughout the evening. I wonder whether it took longer to count the urban votes, where maybe Labour was still stronger than in some rural seas. I don't know. But anyway, that's just speculation. But it was market changed over the night. Mm, I mean, that sort of 2-3% is absolutely crucial if you're you're talking about forming a government. So, Yes, and it is crucial, especially, of course, with the overhang mandates uh, for Te Pāti Māori. Mm-hmm. I think it's just one at this stage. Might change, of course, after specials. Then we'll have the Port Waikato by-election, of course, later in November. So we'll probably have a parliament of 122. Yeah, I can see it sort of roughly evening out. You know, National are going to score an extra vote on the, uh, extra seat, I should say, on the Port Waikato by-election. I'm still a little bit uncertain about what's going to happen with the Maori seats, because there are two additional seats that they're behind in, but it's very close. So watch that space. Yeah, and typically what happens is, of course, that the right loses about a seat or two. Although I heard James Shaw actually speaking on Q&A on Sunday morning saying, well, we only just got an extra seat just in the last hour really of counting. And he wasn't so sure whether they would actually get another one after specials. Mm. I see it as a, a reasonable assumption that the left are probably going to gain one seat on specials. I think a lot was made that the dynamics might shift because of dissatisfaction of overseas Kiwis with mm. uh, the MIQ system. But if you, you go down and look at the breakdown, I think it's only 80,000 people overseas of, what, 570? Mm-hmm. Just under 570. So I don't necessarily see that changing things massively. But yeah, I see no reason that the general pattern won't hold, but I don't think it's going to be massive. Okay, then let's talk about the other results. One of the surprising features of this election, I think, was the complete annihilation of Labour in the constituencies from 45 seats that they won in 2020 to, I think, 18 at the moment. Yeah, Might, again, still change a little bit, seat or two after the specials, but still, even um, David Farrer, just before the election, predicted they they will lose and they probably end up on 26%, but that would mean maybe 33 constituency MPs and then no list MPs. 
Well, that turned out to be completely wrong. Actually, they have totally collapsed in the constituencies and they will get a substantial number of list MPs in anyway. That's right. A really, really strong rebuke to Labour's policy platform and this hooks back into what we were saying last week. The initial sort of pitch from 2017 was was transformational. The transformation didn't come and then you try and, and row it back and people saw through that and the really problematic thing that, that Labour are facing is they've lost support both to the left and to the right. So if you look at, I mean, I think it's not being commented on as much as it probably should, but the loss of support among the Maori Maori voters is really significant for Labour going forward. It's it makes it very complicated for them in the future. Yeah, exactly. And then losing that sort of more well-heeled urban vote to the Greens and, and some key electorates, I think, as well, is, is problematic. And then they've clearly lost the battle, the centre ground battle as well. And you, you see that most markedly in Auckland. I found that interesting, actually, that the Greens now have three constituencies. Again, could change, wrong or tie, we're not quite sure. But again, this repeats a pattern, actually, that we've seen overseas. And actually, even on the same day, we had the voice referendum in Australia. Interesting thing there was all Australian states and territories voted against it, even Victoria, which is Australia's version of California. (laughs) (laughs) Well, except for the Australian capital territory. So Canberra was the only place that really voted for the voice. And that, again, showed you the divisions actually between inner city, urban elites, bureaucrats in this case, and the rest of the country. We've had a similar pattern, of course, in the Brexit vote. We have Mm. a similar pattern in Trump. We have a similar pattern in this election here. So is it true to say that I think Western societies are just becoming more and more polarised in every election? There's certainly a cultural cleavage that's that's opened up. Cultural cleavage? I've never <laughs> heard that before. I, I don't necessarily know if it's becoming more and more polarised. If I look at this election, I think actually many of the cultural issues were, were downplayed. And I wouldn't have necessarily picked that six months before. So Perhaps out of fear. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, that, that was... Labour's positioning. But also I think actually the Greens didn't necessarily beat their drum as, as hard on that. I think the difference is you take a city like Wellington, well, you've got a, a ton of bureaucrats and they'd shaped their message, they tailored their message very well to, to the demographic. But yeah, it is, it is problematic going forwards because we're starting to see our electoral landscape splinter in ways that are, are new and, and perhaps surprising. Indeed. Since we're talking about culture, let's talk about the political culture. Actually, that was one of the positives of election night, I must say. Mm. I thought the statements we heard from our politicians election night and then beyond were dignified on both sides. So I thought Chris Hipkins gave a very dignified concession speech, mm-hmm. congratulating Luxon and saying he, he would now be in caretaker mode and he would do his best to support the transition. Actually, I heard Mark Mitchell, Mark on, Mitchell on yeah. asking, uh, yeah. saying very nice words about Andrew Little after Little announced his retirement. So there is civility, actually, in the political discourse. I would actually include James Shaw on this. So he was on Q&A, and I thought he delivered a very sober, fair interview, avoided the usual kind of phraseology and just spoke his mind, but in a really nice, friendly, fair way. So actually, the behavior of our politicians after the election was outstandingly good. I, I think you're right. The bonds of civility haven't been entirely... Severed. Which is nice after this kind of election campaign. It is nice, and I think it's something we've perhaps taken for granted in New Zealand. 
I think more concerning though is there is a, a disconnect between how the politicians probably deal with one another, right? I think New Zealand's actually quite lucky where the political class is, is fairly harmonious and it is nice to see kind words across across the aisle. And like you, I listened to Mark Mitchell speak very warmly of, of Andrew Little for his, his service. But there's it a felt dis- good to hear, actually. Yeah, it, it did, especially after yeah. after the after the campaign. But I think there's a disconnect between that sort of mano a mano commentary and and the sort of online stuff that's going on, which is, is probably more negative and is, is tapping into that polarisation yeah. that you allude to. Actually, another politician to include in this line is Chris Bishop. Mm-hmm. He was also on Q&A on Sunday morning and talked quite empathetically about Labour. And he yeah. said, well, actually, we were in the same situation in 2020, and it is really hard to see half your caucus disappear and colleagues. And, and then he actually empathised with Labour going through that. He says, I don't want to rub any salt on their wounds, but I know how it feels and I've been there, and it's ter- terrible. So actually, you could see the human side of politics in all of this. That's right, and that is consonant with what I see, you know, if I um, tune into a select committee. I mean, most Kiwis aren't tuning into these things, but... um, It's only people (laughs) like us. (laughs) Exactly. But yeah, it is really nice to see. Okay, so let's get to work then. Or actually... Well, we have to wait, Oliver. (laughs) (laughs) Or let's wait um, until the politicians get back to work. Actually, I think there's a lot of work going on, of course, at Mm -hmm. the moment. I've got an insights piece this week talking a little bit about that. Most people think this period after the election is a bit of a, <laughs> an anticlimax where after the excitement of the election campaign, now nothing happens for three weeks and we wait for specials to be counted and, and then coalition talks. But actually, behind closed doors, a lot of stuff is happening. And I find this period actually quite fascinating. What makes this period so special is, of course, that this is perhaps the only time in the parliamentary cycle when politicians can talk freely to each other. Mm. There are no ministerial officials present. The media is usually locked out. You can't OIA these conversations, so the Official Information Act doesn't apply. Mm -hmm. And so they can talk freely. Also knowing, of course, the next election is now three years away, and whatever they do now, it will be forgotten in 2026. Mm -hmm. So... This is a really important period of policy making. I think that's right. It's a rare moment, you know, that gives some breathing space for the politicians. I mean, politics in, in the modern world is so frantic. You know, the media cycle is is crazy and everything is followed, everything is OIA'd and to be able to step back just for a couple of weeks, I think, is is no bad thing. I also have an insights column out this week, and do you? Um, I think I read it. <laughs> yeah, I slightly. You did reference me. Yeah, my esteemed my esteemed colleague. You have to write that. <laughs> I agree with your your point that the breathing room is is good, and you know we want strong working relationships, and we want ideas to be thrashed out most importantly but I think the the problem with New Zealand's electoral system is that that breathing room is created because we're having to wait on special votes and and so you know I I would love if we we just knew what the outcome was the electoral outcome was and then we gave the so you want it more efficient yeah I I like the German model oh do you (laughs) (laughs) okay well yeah the specials counting period is over, the coalition talks are done and dusted, and now we have a three-party government with National New Zealand First and Act. What are these three parties actually likely to agree on? Mm. 
I think there's more that they they can agree on than the sort of the rhetoric leading up to the election would would lead you to believe. You know, there was a lot of just politicking going on about how we can't trust this person, we can't work with them, there'll be, there'll be a disruption, I think. Well, Christopher Luxon said he doesn't actually know Winston yeah. Peters. <laughs> well, he'll, he'll soon know him very well. <laughs> but on the on the policy front, I, I don't see this, you know, uh, shaping up to be especially problematic. You know, on some of the cultural issues around the treaty and, and co-governance, there's, there's a clear path forward. I mean, they all have different positions, but I don't see that as, as being especially problematic. And we've chatted about this in the past as well, Oliver, public service reform. I think they're speaking from the same hymn sheet there. Yes, and, and not just public service reform. I mean, we could basically go through the different policy areas. I think when it comes to education, for example, mm-hmm. there's probably not much disagreement between the three parties that the system is in crisis and needs yep. to be reformed. So I think there it should be relatively easy to find some common ground. Yeah, just revert back to the basics, I think is going to be a common theme coming out of that education discussion. Yep. Another area where the parties actually may find a surprising commonality is actually localism. Mm-hmm. Because we've had an amazing drive towards centralism in the last six years, and all three parties are actually uncomfortable with that. Yeah, that's right. It's one of the things about Luxon at the helm of the National Party that's come through very strongly is his commitment to to localism and I believe that may have derived from uh, one of his visits on a previous New Zealand initiative delegation. Yes, yes, it did. It's also something that the ACT Party shares. Yep, And I think it's something that resonates with New Zealand first even. I mean, Shane Jones in the first term of the Labour government talking about being the champion of the regions. That's right. So from ACT's position, it's a deeper philosophical commitment. Yep. But that blends very well with, as, as you say, that kind of feet on the ground and a Northland aspect of, of New Zealand first. So and for national, it's more a transactional thing. C- correct, yep. Mm. But in any case, no matter where they're coming from philosophically on that one, they could probably come together. I agree. Okay. Well, let's talk about the public service then. There was an interesting piece actually by Philip Crump in ZB Plus, that new platform run out of News Talk, in which he talked about Luxon being the chief restructuring officer. Not sure whether you've seen it. I've, I've not read it, but it's uh, flagged up on my desktop. <laughs> right, right. No, and it probably rings true anyway, because Luxon talked a lot about that actually mm. during the election campaign, that he sees his role at as one where he would make the public service perform better based on his management experience. Sort of KPIs and so on. And giving them not just KPIs, but strict targets, actually. You cut by 6.5% and you'll make that happen. And and we'll follow up on that and we'll check and there will be accountability in all of this talk. So I think the public service is in for quite a change. Mm, Bit of a rough ride in the run-up to Christmas, potentially. Yes, and also, that was in Philip Crumb's piece, he mentioned, actually he <laughs> quoted Roger Partridge and mentioned the initiative, saying that there are now um, people within national thinking about moving the New Zealand public service towards an Australian model. It's something we've also talked about here on the podcast before. The idea is that you would take the public service commission, you locate it with, within the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, and you put it effectively under political control so that the politicians in the beehive would actually be really in charge of the public service rather than being guided by the public service. Do you see that happening? I do. I I spoke earlier about 
the cultural cleavage in the nation at large, but I think you know there's a cultural disconnect between um, you know our politicians, um, especially on on the centre right, and our our public service, and we need to work towards uh, bridging that that gap because at the end of the day, our public servants are there to support and help enact the policies of the elected government and. And so those tweaks around the edges to allow that relationship to work better should be encouraged. And I see strong hints among all three parties, actually, that that's something that they really want to take head on. Yeah, I pick that up too. And I think, again, they would find it easy to build some kind of consensus between the three of them. Yeah. I mean, the thing that I was surprised at, though, was that it wasn't sold in a better way earlier on. You got the sort of talking points from Luxon about the sort of bloated public service, et cetera, et cetera. But they never kind of went into that more granular level, which I think would have resonated with Kiwis. You know, do, just do you t- think so? I think if you are able to explain, okay, this is MB, <laughs> this is what they are delivering for you. Yeah, but it's such a beltway conversation. I think if you go to the average Kiwi and say, look, we are really committed to reforming the public service, we will undo the changes to the Public Service Act 2020, and we'll actually make it perform differently, and our big idea is actually to make it more like the Australian system and blah, blah, blah. I think you will lose Kiwis, and I wouldn't try this at a dinner party. Yeah, well, that probably says more about me than other people. <laughs> no, but seriously, it is not the sexiest of topics, public service reform. Yeah, but it, but it's, it's, so, it's so important. It, it, we are in Wellington, and we would definitely know that it's very important, but I think it is not a vote winner. <laughs> I'll concede that one. I, I, I can't imagine a party doing the hoardings with public service <laughs> Although... I mean, you can always try. I would just do the hoardings in outside yeah. Wellington. <laughs> I think the crucial point, though, is it does tap into that that idea of, okay, we're spending a lot of money, the government is growing, but the results are not getting better. Yep. And I think that's the point that potentially could have resonated if, yeah. if packaged up in a different way. Well, the problem was actually illustrated during the election campaign that as soon as you talked about public service reform in the debates, for example, the response from the Prime Minister was, ah, so you want to cut nurses and police and fire services and so on. Yeah, Actually, it was never about that. It's all about the bureaucracy. But as soon as you talk about public service cuts, that's exactly what people think it is. Yeah, it became a very juvenile very juvenile debate and I, I think part of the reason there is just that deep attachment of, of this cohort of Labour politicians, you know, to, to that reaction to the national government in, in the 90s and, and Rogernomics and it was just a knee-jerk uh, response and, and probably politically savvy given that the record was quite hard to sell and so the sort of fear-mongering around savage cuts probably played quite well. But as you say, when you, you looked into it, it was just around the edges and it was you know generally well-paid uh, bureaucratic jobs. Well, that's probably all we can talk about at this stage, about our own election, because the rest is speculation. But before we finish this conversation here, we should talk a little bit about The Voice. Mm-hmm. Because um, I think, actually, that was another really important vote, which, um, yeah, of course it is about Australia, but it does affect us here. Because um, that the path that the Australians are taking will, over time, have an impact on our discussions here as well, as we know. We, we often follow what's happening in Australia. And 
what I found interesting was actually seeing some statements from Bill English, mm-hmm. whom we'll have on the podcast in a few days, hopefully, saying that he thought it signals quite clearly to the Australian business community that they should really largely stay out of these social debates. Mm. And there were many commentators actually after the voice referendum saying that it might have even succeeded had it not been for the corporate support that it received. I think that's right. I I view the voice referendum in the sort of same frame of reference that the Brexit debate happened and it quickly turned into this sort of elitist, you know, people writing sort of op-eds in the Financial Times and saying this would be a total disaster and the the poorly, it's counterproductive. I think the kiss of death for the voice campaign was when Qantas started painting its planes. Yeah, and I I think Qantas actually has some broader problems to deal with about (laughs) how they run those But that was exactly the problem with it. So Qantas customers were saying, well, actually, can you please get your own house in order? Don't sell us tickets to flights you have already cancelled. And stop this kind of politicking. Yeah, I saw a little bit of this in my own sort of professional circles among historians in Australia. And so this sort of touches on the university aspect of it. And historians typically skew towards the the cultural left. And it was almost like there was a consensus opinion on this. You were either on the right side of history or you were on the wrong side. And, and that may well play well in a, an urban base, but it doesn't necessarily translate across the broader demographic, and we, we saw strong pushback to that. Yeah, I'm not sure how closely you followed the Voice campaign. I think one of the other decisive factors was actually having Jacinta Price mm. and Warren Mundine involved, so two Aboriginal Australians campaigning on the North side. So they actually said, well, nobody would be against improving results for Aboriginal Australians, least of all us, because we are Aboriginal. But we don't think that's the solution. And so that actually shifted the debate onto, does this actually help? Is this a well-intentioned thing? Yeah, that's right. And But there was also the deeper problem that Albanese never really explained why they were having it in the first place and how it would lead to better outcomes. And he couldn't actually explain the details. Yeah, actually, in one of the postmortems of the voice referendum, I found that that was actually the crucial point. So the no campaign was actually quite surprised that running on this argument, hey, the details are missing, was actually one of their strongest points, rather than going into the details of policy and what this might do and how dangerous it might be in the future and what might follow from it. That actually didn't even resonate. What resonated was actually, here is a proposal, but nobody can explain what it is. Yeah, and if you're going to make people go to the polls, <laughs> and in Australia you yeah. have to have to go to the polls, you should have good answers to those questions. And the other interesting factor, actually, if you're looking at polling for The Voice, at the beginning of the year, The Voice would have passed with probably 70 or 80% majority even. Mm-hmm. So no problem at all. Initially, the No campaign believed that the only chance they would have to stop it is not to or against an overall majority, but make sure that it actually fails on the second criteria in Australia, which is having a majority of the states. So they focus on some individual states like South Australia, trying to convince them actually to vote no in order to basically make this referendum fail rather than trying to get an overall nationwide no. And then they were surprised actually that the whole message is that they spread in these individual states went viral <laughs> and uh, resonated across the whole continent. And that's the way that they won this campaign. Mm. So uh, very interesting dynamics. And I think it will be studied for years, actually, how this failed. Because it was just remarkable, given the complete support of the political class, the media, 
the business community that in the end the outcome was a 60-40 no. Yeah, that's right. The interesting stuff that comes out of these referendums is always the sort of campaigning detail. So if I look back to Brexit, it's how is Dominic Cummings running his vote leave operation? It's all about strategy, optics and tactics. And yeah, I've not been following it as close as I, I probably should have. But, you know, as we sort of progress, that's the stuff that I think will really illuminate what has happened. It was also a bit of history repeating for the Australians because they had a very similar referendum in the late 90s, of course, on the Republic. Yeah. And that was another instance of people saying, well, actually, we're not quite sure how this alternative will play out in practice, so we'd rather vote against it. And I think Albanese repeated all the mistakes of the campaign back then. I think, actually, historians will study this and political scientists will study this for quite some time. And actually, they will be much more careful with any future referenda, as they should be, because in Australia, of course, there's a tradition of saying no to proposed <laughs> changes to the Constitution. And I think they've only actually ever said yes to three of them in hundred and what's it now, 22 years of Australian federal history. So there is a bit of a lesson in there, but I hope to continue the conversation actually on this podcast with Bill English, because I think his perspective will be quite interesting as someone who's now sitting on an Australian board as well, actually I think on two Australian boards. So he's got a lot of conversations with Australian colleagues and mm. business leaders. And I'm really curious about Bill's perspective on this, but it'll be a separate conversation. For now, I think all we can do is just observe how these pre-coalition talks go, wait for the specials to be declared, but at least rejoice that this election campaign, which we liked so much, is over and look forward to the next stage. Thank Fantastic. you, Matthew. Cheers, Oliver. Thanks. Thanks.